My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Great to be with you today. As, uh, as Cody just noted, if you were here last week, we took a little pause from our Galatians series as we talked about the tragedy that came upon our community and just spent some time on that. The message last week was when tragedy strikes. And so we stepped out of off the hook for a week. Today we'll get back into it and we'll be in Galatians chapter 4. But I wanted to give you just a quick update. If you weren't here last Sunday, well, one of the things that we did was take up a grace offering. And grace offering is something that we do here on a quarterly basis just to uh, care for some of the uh, financial needs of people both in our church and outside of our church through our deacon and deaconess ministries and our storehouse ministries. We do that on a quarterly basis, and typically the church is very, very generous. We receive three or $4,000 for those needs that helps well with uh, some things that come up with our people uh, in, in our community on, on any given week. But last Sunday, we made an announcement that whatever was received last Sunday, 100% of that would go to flood relief, and we received $15,000. And so I just want to thank you for that. This church has been so generous, both financially and in terms of your time and your skills, your passion and your prayers. We also received last week about 130, 140 new people to sign up for flood relief. That's new names on top of additional names that we had from the flood over in Gibbon and Wood River uh, back a few months ago. So that's just an incredible response from our church. We're kind of at capacity with what our church can do right now as we are partnering with Restore Ministries, Mike O'Brien's ministry. And so we have Storehouse and Restore and Carney E. Free partnering together. And we're working right now with over 50 homes and a couple businesses in our community to seek to get these folks back on their feet that have lost so much after the flood. And that goes from Elm Creek to Kearney to Gibbon to Wood River. And so uh, we do. We, we thank you so much for your willingness to volunteer for those efforts. Sometimes the church has been accused of kind of dropping in and doing something nice and pulling out. And that's not the kind of church that we're building here, is it? We're the kind of church that comes in because this is the community that we're in. And we stay there for the long haul. That's what we did back in March, and well, we're going to continue to do that. And so if you haven't yet had an opportunity to sign up for that or you'd like to serve in some way over the coming weeks and coming months, you can do that by going through this door. You can also sign up online if you're watching online today at carneyefree.com. You can always go there during the week as well and sign up to volunteer. And there's all different kinds of skills that are going to be needed over these uh, next months. So... Uh, let's continue to pray for our community, and let's do that right now as we prepare to enter into the scriptures. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful community that you've called us into. We want to be the kind of Christians who demonstrate commitment and consistency over time. Because we know that when we are those kinds of Christians, we actually embody the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Lord Jesus, you said, let your light so shine before people that they would see your good deeds and glorify your God in heaven. And we ask, God, that you would use us for that. We say, here we are. Would you use us for your glorious purposes in our community right now? We trust that you have placed us here in this moment to be a light and to be difference makers for our neighbors and for businesses and homes in our community. And we ask, God, for those even in our church here this morning who are still struggling as a result of what happened less than two weeks ago, 
that you would be in the process of rebuilding their homes, rebuilding businesses. May we be the body of Christ who partners with them. Would you grant them resilience and perseverance? Would you grant them your spirit that they would know Jesus through his spirit is with us in our time of need. I pray for any friends in this room who are feeling overwhelmed and burdened, whether it be because of the floods or anything else in life, that you would let them know that you're near to the brokenhearted. You save those who are crushed in spirit. You come close to those who are hurting. And so we draw near to you today. Father, as we continue in our series in Galatians, our prayer is that you would focus us on the scriptures and you would teach us from a difficult and complex passage. Give us soft hearts and open minds. I confess I need a clear mind for this passage. I'm not a good enough preacher for this one. So Lord, do your work in me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, is anything more ingrained in the human spirit than the longing for freedom? I'm not sure that there's anything that is more central to the human spirit, more central to what I really desire in life than freedom. I was reflecting upon our passage at hand today, and then it made me think about a number of key turning points in American history, and you see the longing for freedom in America in our history specifically, don't you? It was the Revolutionary War, of course, that was all about freedom of religion and gaining freedom. The original pilgrims and the original Puritans came to gain freedom of religious expression. And then later on, the longing for freedom from being ruled across the pond, the desire for self-governance, led to the Revolutionary War. Then in our own country, at the moment of greatest need, where there was a civil war, there was this longing for freedom, and this great, great desire for an abolition of slavery, that one man would not be owned by another man because of the color of his skin. If you ask a man my age what his favorite movie was when he was 18 or 20 years old, you are liable to hear the word Braveheart. Right, men? At least a few of us well, would say, wow, that was up near the top where you learn the story of a great man by the name of William Wallace who fought for the freedom of the Scottish people against the English at a time well, when the Scottish we're kind of under oppression. And he rallies his troops to fight for the freedom of the Scottish in this scene in which he gives this speech. And you might remember these words. He says, run and you'll live at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Mmm. Doesn't they make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Like, even if you don't know the history behind it, it's like, that is profound. 
speaks to our spirits in a great way. I have two favorite speeches in American history. One is Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which is all about equality under the law, regardless of color of skin, and on and on well we could go. The other one is Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, in which he says this, Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in, in liberty. A new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I mean, how profound are these words? Don't they call into something deep within you? I think particularly for us as Americans, these words and our founding documents and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, they call into something deep within us because that's part of what we've been made as Americans, but also it's part of what God has made for us that we would long for freedom. It's part of how he's made us. Now the truth is, none of us, or at least I would guess, almost none of us in this room have ever had the experience of being enslaved to another person. And we only know these stories of revolution from distant family members or from our history books, and they are profound. It's good that we review those regularly. But we don't know those experiences personally in terms of our own existential reality here in this world. But what we do know about is another kind of bondage and a longing for another kind of freedom. Stick with me here. We all know about the bondage of being enslaved to a certain area of temptation, don't we? That it's like hand over fist. I don't want to go this way, but it seems like as far back as I can remember, I, I always naturally go this way when I want to go this way. And the Bible calls that an inborn sinful condition that can enslave us. We also all know the experience of being enslaved to someone else's opinions of us. Isn't that right? Would you nod your head with me if that's right? I think we all know the experience of needing to live for someone else's affirmation and uh, really wanting to please another person and being overly concerned, too much concerned with the rules that other people place on us. And the thesis of the Apostle Paul's letter in Galatians has been building up across the past four chapters as he's culminating well with this point here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, which really speaks to the innate human longing to eventually have freedom, at the very least, at a soul level. That's what this passage though, that we're going to go after here today is all about. Freedom at a soul level. Here's what Paul says. It is for freedom. Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not take on to yourself any yoke of slavery again, because it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Such a powerful word. Well, let's read this out loud together, far from the screen. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke, not again by any yoke of slavery. He's been building up to this over the past four chapters because he wants us to live in freedom. 
And the reason he's doing this so much in the Galatian church is because of this problem that has infected the church. The essential problem won't be a surprise to you by this point if you've been with us over the course of this summer. The essential problem is this. A virus has gotten into the church, and the virus is basically this. Grace plus works equals salvation. You know that by now in Galatians? This is the virus that has infected the church. And Paul's been hammering on this point for the first four chapters of Galatians because he's so concerned about legalism taking over any church. The Galatians, and frankly many Christians over the centuries, have been infected by a virus that contends, yes, you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, you know that he forgives your sins and you follow him, but also do you, right? And in Galatia it was, but also do you follow all of the civil and ceremonial laws of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, do you follow all 613 of those too? Okay? That was the virus that had taken over the Galatian church. And it led to this legalism around Sabbath keeping and circumcision and a whole bunch of other minutia. As well, in our culture today, it could be, have you done such things as proper penance? Have you done such things as memorize the different books of the Bible? Have you had certain ecstatic religious experiences? Do you give this amount to the church? Do you serve this frequently? Do you speak in tongues? Do you, and then all of a sudden it becomes, do you do, 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 do all over you, right? I mean, have you been in one of those churches? Have you had one of those pastors? I hope you don't say it's me, please. But in a nutshell, this is the concern this is the problem. Galatians 3.3 and capture, captures it well. It says this, Are you so foolish, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? That was the essential problem in the Galatian church. It's an essential problem in many churches, even to, to this day, beginning by the power of the Holy Spirit, but then trying to finish by means of the flesh. It's Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank religion. The essential solution that Paul's been giving again and again, the answer to, to this problem is, accept the gospel by faith, period. Just receive it. Just receive the unconditional, unfathomable love of God to you based on nothing that you can do. God's grace to you is sufficient. The gospel by itself of Jesus' death and resurrection pardons sinners like us and welcomes us into God's family. Simply accept it. Receive it by grace through faith, nothing that we add to it. And Paul's so intent on talking about this and reinforcing it to the church in Galatia and also in Rome and in Philippi and Ephesians and again and again throughout the different letters that he writes, at least in this letter to Galatians, he repeats it four or five different times. Look at Galatians 2.16. He says, a person is not justified. I would circle not justified. By what? By what? By works. Not justified by works of the law. No works of the law. No resume that we would point to that we would say, God, am I now good before you? Because none of us have enough on our own. Not by works of the law, but by, what is it? 
faith, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now he's so concerned with this that he repeats it again and again in 16 and then a number of different times in this letter. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Again, justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, how many people are justified? No one. No one. Can't be done. Because we're never good enough. It's always and only the spilt blood of Christ that is good enough to freely justify us. So we never stand on our own resume. We stand on what Christ has done. Simply receive it as a free gift and then live for God by the power of the Holy Spirit who is now in us, guiding us, and leading us. Now, chapter 4, the end of chapter 3, leads into today's uh, passage. All of that was just review. <laughs> there you go. Happy you came. That's all just review. You already knew all that. Okay, but today's passage is Galatians 4, starting at verse 21. And uh, leading into it, at the end of chapter 3, start of chapter 4, here's what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, we are one diverse, messy family. So we have Jews and Gentiles together, and we are family together. In spite of all the different ethnicities that we have in this church, and I'm so grateful for that, may it increase, all the different ethnicities, we are one family under God. And there is equal ground at the foot of the cross, no matter what ethnicity you are. You've got to know that. And he says, male and female, there are no sexual power plays in God's church. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. And various classes he talks about, those who are servants and those who are masters, doesn't matter how much money you make, there is equal ground at the foot of the cross. Can I get an amen? Amen to all this. This is talking about reconciliation. We want to be a church that's about reconciliation between God and between others. He goes on to say that we are all children of Abraham, heirs of Abraham in the father's family. As Abraham was father to the Jews, so Abraham is our father because we are in this same covenant family under God together now. That's the preamble to chapter 4, verse 21. I want you to know as you hear it, it is a complex Difficult to understand passage, especially for us in 2019. It would have made more sense to them back in AD 47, well, when it was originally written. But I'd like you to listen to it uh, from Andrea Spanier from our creative arts team. She's going to read it for us. You'll see it up on the screen. You might mark up certain words, though, that you notice as you go. But take a listen to Andrea as we go through Galatians 4:21 through a bit of chapter 5. Tell me. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. 
because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Would you agree that's a complex passage? There's a lot in that, and I would say this is the most complex passage in all of Galatians. But I think we can break it down. And uh, we really believe here at Carnegie Free in teaching the Bible. We believe you all can, we, we believe everyone can understand the Bible. It's, it's made to be understood. We need to do some biblical interpretation to bring it from the first century to the 21st century. But ordinary folks like us can understand it. Let's try to break this down as best we can. It'll help to kind of look at this little diagram. There's two families though, that are spoken of in that passage though, that you just heard, aren't there? There's these two different families though, that merge together in this one blended family. You have first, of course, Abraham and Sarah, and then you have Abraham and Hagar. And Hagar was an indentured servant within Abraham and Sarah's family. She would have sold her services as an employee to their family for a time as a means for caring for herself. So as you know the story, the Jews, of course, identify with this family, right? Abraham and Sarah, from whom you get Isaac. And then there's this other family, Abraham and Hagar, from whom you get Ishmael. If you don't remember the story, it goes back to Genesis 15, 16, 20, 21. Yeah, you can read it later on today. But in essence, it's this. God has given this wonderful promise to Abraham and Sarah, and what was it? I'm going to turn you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a son. Give you a son. I'm going to make you a great family. And from that, make you into a great nation that's going to bless the other nations of the earth. Now, it wasn't really happening for them, was it? They thought it was going to happen, but they're starting to get old, and it's not happening. And as it isn't happening, Sarah starts to panic. And so she goes to Abraham, and she says, we have this other woman living within our home, and she's still of childbearing years. So Abraham, why don't you treat her as a mistress? Go lie down with Hagar, and perhaps God would have us to have a son through her. And so he does. And out of that comes 
Ishmael. But please, somebody tell me, was that God's plan? Is it ever God's plan to exert a sexual power play on someone? Never. Never. And we got to state that, especially in our culture today. It's never God's plan to exert a sexual power play on someone else. It is also never God's plan that infidelity would happen. But amazingly, God is able to forgive all of this. He's willing to forgive Abraham and Sarah for their terrible scheme that they've developed. Of course, there's incredible consequences for their family in it, but they forgive them of what, God forgives them of what they have done. And then, as he forgives them, eventually, Abraham and Sarah have their own family, though they have Isaac, as was promised to them. Sarah becomes 90 years old, and this miraculous birth, she has Isaac at that point, and that's the fulfillment of the promise made all those years ago to Abraham and Sarah. So you have these two different families blending together in one. It doesn't go very well for them. It's possible blended families can work. It doesn't go very well for them in this instance. And what Paul does at this point in the story is kind of flip it on its head. Uh, the Jews, of course, would identify with this family, right? The Jews would identify with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. They would say, we came culturally, we came ethnically from this family. What Paul does here is really stunning. He's speaking to Jews in the first century, and he says, you're not with Abraham and Sarah. You're with Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael. Wow. You're the son of a slave woman. You're the son of a slave boy. Why does he say that? Because they have encumbered themselves with these 613 laws that become all these legalistic requirements on top of the grace of Jesus Christ, and they become a form of slavery. So he says, ironic twist, you are not with Sarah and Isaac, you're with Hagar and Ishmael. I tell you, they would have fought over this. These were fighting words. Again, why was this? Because they forsook the freedom of Christ for endless rules related to kosher, and circumcision and strict Sabbath minutia and about which people were clean and which people weren't clean and they were enslaved by all of that. The point is that there's two different kinds of kids here. There's the one of the indentured servant, there's one of the free and he goes on to say this in verse 23, Abraham's son by the slave woman okay, that's Hagar She's not a slave in the way we think of slavery. Again, it's a dentured servant. Was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman, that Sarah, was born how? As a result of divine promise. Okay, so Hagar and Ishmael have this child born as a result of the flesh, in which Sarah basically says, this isn't working out for me. Let me take matters into my own hands. And I think this is where it, relies, where it really relates to us. Because sometimes, well, we get some kind of promise from God, some kind of inkling from God, and we say, this isn't working out for me. I'm going to go ahead and take matters into my own hands. I'll take care of it from here. You can understand why Sarah did this. She's been waiting for decades to have a child. She hasn't been able to have a child. She wants something that's good, but that something that is good isn't coming to her. 
But when she takes matters into her own hands, what happens in her family? Infidelity, and then sibling strife, and then the family divides over incessant jealousy. It didn't work out. She tried to control it. It didn't work out. So he reminds the church in Galatia, and he would remind us, this applies to us as well, you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. This is who we are, children of the promise that God would come to us and by his grace he would save us, not based on anything that we do, but all based on what he does. And so eventually God comes through for Sarah and Abraham, and again at age 90, they have this miraculous birth of baby Isaac, incredible miraculous birth, and what he's trying to say there in verse 28 is, as Isaac is a child of the promise purely by grace, Every one of you, when you went through a spiritual conversion, are children of a miraculous promise. Every single spiritual rebirth is a miracle. Whether it happens at age 8 or age 80, when God regenerates someone from an inborn sin status and gives them freedom in Christ, that is a miraculous rebirth. And that's what happens every time someone comes to the gospel. Now, why does Paul spend so much time across four chapters belaboring this point, using all of his rhetoric and all these analogies and stories around the same essential point of the gospel plus nothing equals everything? Why? Because God wants us to receive the gospel by grace and stop standing on our resumes. He wants us to receive it freely and say, God, you are enough. I trust in you. And also because God really, genuinely hates legalism. God hates rule-based religion. He is so concerned with legalism, blurring the lines and becoming this fog that obscures the beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection. And it kind of becomes like this. If you remember this slide, you got the, the cross and the empty tomb in the background. And sometimes those things become obscured. They become kind of a fog behind all these other things that we can place on top of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are wise as a church to regularly come back and say, we keep the main thing the main thing here. We major on the majors, and we minor on the minors, and we might have disagreements over some of those things, but we major on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which we gain freedom. Here's the simple truth. Legalism produces fear the gospel produces freedom if you take notes write that down because we're all tempted by legalism from time to time legalism produces fear the gospel of jesus christ is intended to produce freedom I'll tell you a story about a family in our church that shared this story with me at the beginning of this series as uh, she grew up in a very legalistic family, very legalistic church. She went to a church where she was told she had to have all these ecstatic religious experiences, and if she didn't, she wasn't quite a Christian, or maybe she's a second-class Christian, Christian, or maybe not even a Christian. She was also told that if she died before she had repented of any of her individual sins, God would take her immediately to hell. What does that produce, somebody? Stifling fear. So here she is raised in this church environment where she's struggling all the time with this stifling fear that I'm not good enough. Maybe I haven't done enough things. 
Maybe God wouldn't be satisfied with me. Maybe I did one sin that I forgot about and I didn't apologize for, and maybe God wouldn't forgive me for that. Fast forward, she gets married, and her husband is a wise spiritual man, know him well, and he wants to lead his family in devotion, so they're going through the book of Matthew. They get into the book of Matthew, and the first thing they see is this wonderful genealogy of Jesus that many of us kind of skip over, right? And they're going through the genealogy of Jesus, and she just honestly says, I don't even know who some of these people are. Anyone else? Like, as you look at that, sometimes we don't even know who some of these people are. And he says back to her, well, you can't be a Christian if you don't know all these names. He was joking. Okay, you can laugh. It was a joke. But it was not a joke to her at that moment. What it produced immediately was a retreat to what she used to feel, which was this choking fear. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. God wouldn't accept me as I am. I have to get things together before I can become a Christian. Once again, legalism produces fear. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces freedom. Now stick with me as I try to uh, land this plane and bring it to where we live here today in 2019. Across all the centuries, I believe this message is meant for us because the world system produces this mask where we have to go around wearing this mask, and it's a mask that enslaves. The world system enslaves with a mask that says, I must prove to you how special I am. And the crazy and ironic thing is, secular people and Christian people in the church do the same things. They put on masks to try to communicate to someone else, look how special I am. Can I prove to you how much I have it together? Can I prove to you how spiritual or how good or how powerful I am? In the church, it's often this. I must prove to others in the church how spiritual I am. In some churches, it is, I must prove to you how holy I am, how generous I am, how many books of the Bible I know, how many good answers to really hard questions I have, how many religious experiences I've had. And none of those things are bad on their own. But hear me, if you think that those things give you a greater standing before God and other people, Jesus says they're worthless. He says they're worthless. And they just produce this mask where we go around wearing this false veneer of look at how fill in the blank I am. I've shown you my little mask before, and I'm going to go ahead and take it out right now for just a moment. Yes, I am a dork. <laughs> this is awesome, amazing Adrian. He is so incredible. <laughs> Let me tell you about how many Bible answers he has. Let me tell you about how much education I have. Oh, I better stop this. He's so special. Just ask my wife how special I am. How awesome or amazing I am. The thing about mass is they're really hollow, aren't they? There's nothing behind them. And people do this in a hundred different ways, inside the church and outside the church. It can be, take a look at how powerful I am, 
would you please notice how much status I have in town? Would you please notice what a man's man I am? Would you please notice what a bad truck I drive? Would you please notice how beautiful I am? Would you please give me some affirmation for the clothes I wear and the style of phone I have? I mean, we do this all the time. The world system is all about posturing. Let, let, me, let me give you this face, facade of a person, none of which is real, but is aiming to impress. And we can do this so much as we buy into the world system that we begin to lose focus on what is real and what is fake. They just start to blend together. But again, the thing about mass is they're hollow. And eventually they fall apart. They do nothing for us before God. And they actually lead to an enslavement. That I have to be something false. Something that I'm not. So that I could gain your approval. They prevent us from being vulnerable courageous people who stand in the grace of God and nothing less. It's for freedom. It's for freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm in the grace of God knowing that Jesus would never have you take on another yoke of slavery again. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. The world system enslaves with this false idea that I must posture and seek your approval by all the things that I do by standing on my resume. I know this is a really the theoretical message. I'm trying to make it practical. I want to encourage you to do this one thing, though, this week. Here's one application. Have a conversation with someone in your family or with a friend and just process together through this question. How does standing on the grace of God produce freedom for you in a way that standing on your own resume does not produce freedom? Process through that. Here it is for me. When I stand on my own resume, I think I might be more intelligent than someone else until I'm not, and then I can't stand. When I stand on my own resume, I think I might be more educated than someone else until I'm not, and then my footing gets weak. I think I might be more athletic though, than someone else. I went through that for so many years, I can't tell you. And yet Jesus freed me from that slowly, little bit by little bit, over the course of the past 20 years of being a Christian, such that I'm 100% for him, and frankly, I could care less what individual people think about me. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying I've learned that I get my life from Jesus, not what other people think about me. That's the difference that's made for me. You see, Christ's system removes the mask and it says, I am free to live for God alone. I don't need to leave, live for someone else's approval. I am free to live for God alone. Uh, Christ system doesn't guarantee an end to human trafficking. Christ system doesn't guarantee an end to slavery. 
Christ system doesn't guarantee uh, universal religious liberty. I think it does lead us to fight for those things, absolutely. I think absolutely it leads us to fight for those things. You understand Christ, you understand that we have a role in fighting for those things. But here's what Christ system gives us. A freedom from the ravages of our old sinful nature and a freedom from having to live for other people's approval. We all have this sinful condition that grabs a hold of us such that we are tempted to keep going in the same direction towards certain temptations that have always got us across so many years. And in Christ, as we are bathed in Him more and more over time, the trajectory of our life slowly and gradually begins to change so that now we are going toward the direction of Christ. Little bit by little bit, we get changed from the inside out and our sin status changes that we're not mostly sinners, we're mostly saints that are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are free. I love the way John Wesley put it. My chains fell off and I was free. Behold, I rose and followed thee. That's what happens to us in Christ. And then we are free not to live for other people's rules, not to be guided by other small rulers, but to have one master, to have one king who is Lord of lords, and king of kings and actually to live before an audience of God alone and that is freedom so father we want to live in that we really want to live in that we, we don't want to live in this ridiculous fear of what other people with their rules would have against us. We want to rise and follow you. 100% we want to follow you. And yet, Father, um, we've been in churches. We've sat under pastors. Some of us have had mothers and fathers. Some of us have been in a cultural milieu that has been very legalistic. And some of us still feel the consequences of that even today. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who feel like they're under a bondage of, I'm never good enough. My resume is never strong enough. I pray, Lord, that you would speak your gospel to them right now, that they are freed by the blood of Jesus. Free to live for God. Free to follow Christ 100%. To love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love others as ourselves. And to pursue you wherever you would lead us. I pray for others who today would just admit, I've never actually given my life to Christ. And the result of that is I have no freedom against my sinful nature. I'm dominated by the flesh. And you may be in the spot right now that you say, I, I want what Adrian is talking about this morning. I want what Paul is talking about in the scriptures this morning. I don't want to be dominated by my flesh anymore. I want to slowly begin to grow in freedom as a saint of God. And if you're in that spot today and you've not really given your life to Christ, or maybe you did a long, long time ago at a middle school camp or something, but you've been far from him. And today you say, I need freedom from this sin status. 
that leaves me in a place that I am not right with God because I'm dominated by my sinful passions. Would you just admit that to God right now? You, you gotta come and be honest to God. And if that's where you are, just admit that to him by raising your hand right now and saying, God, I want freedom in you. I see you, brother. Thank you for saying that. I see you, sister. Thank you for saying that. I see you, brother. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for being honest this morning. Is there anyone else? Thank you. I see you in the back there, brother, raising your hand. Thank you for being honest though, this morning and admitting that. This is the beginning. Confessing I need God. Confessing that I don't have what it takes on my own. And thank you, Jesus, I don't have to stand on my own. Thank you, Jesus, I don't have to stand on my own. I see you, brother, here in the front. Thank you. Thank you for your courage just to admit that. If you, if you raise your hand with me, though, this morning, just pray this along with me. In fact, let's all pray it out loud together. Very, very simple, so no one feels singled out in this room. Just pray it out loud together with me. Just, just follow me here, okay? Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you, Jesus, that you offer forgiveness to me. Thank you, Jesus, you paid for my sins. I admit that I'm a sinner. Would you make me a saint? Would you bring me into your family? Would you forgive me now? I trust in you today and forevermore. Amen and amen. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for new people in your family today. We thank you. We praise you along with the angels in heaven who are rejoicing over new people in the family of God today. We want to give you all glory. We want to stand in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to embrace freedom. May it be in Christ's name, God's people say, amen, amen. Give God a round of applause, huh?